Genesis chapter 32, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 12, and then 22 to the end. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Eden. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servants. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, Surely I will make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And now continuing from verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is God's word. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you that you give us strange stories of the past, how you interacted with uh, your people back then, vivid stories, in order to drive truth into our hearts. So please be at work by your Spirit doing that, we pray. Would we understand this rightly? Would we understand the sort of God that you are, that loves us so much, to wound us at times? so that we may be blessed. Help us understand you rightly, we pray. In Jesus' great name. Amen. 
Well, we start the season of Advent uh, then today, broadly more exciting for children uh, than uh, adults, the word Advent. But um, before we get into real carol service uh, season towards the end of the month, we're going to spend just a few weeks looking at some theophanies, that is, appearances of God, theos, Greek, uh, appearances of God in the Old Testament. Because there are numerous times, you well, there are dozens and dozens of times, we'll just look at a few, but numerous times where God appears uh, in the Old Testament physically, often in the appearance as a human, not always, sometimes as a non-burning bush, but he appears so that people can see. And so I guess what you have here is foreshadowings of Christmas, anticipations of God in a very different sense coming down and uniting himself to human flesh. So these Old Testament appearances, they're different, they're not essential, they're not permanent, they're temporary, they're just shadows or hints, anticipations of the birth of Jesus Christ. And you have one of those here in Genesis 32, where God appears as a man and wrestles. Now, I don't know if you like wrestling. It is not as fashionable as once it was. If you're a Brit, uh, you may have joined me in the 1970s with 16 million others tuning into World of Sport on a Saturday afternoon to see the pantomime antics of Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks and Kendo Nagasaki and others. 16 million people watched pantomime wrestling. It's extraordinary. If you're not a Brit, if you're American, you have your own form, WWF, just as silly. Um, Pantomime, play acting, sort of wrestling. But it's not quite as fashionable as it was. But biblically, wrestling is a good thing. We're encouraged to do it elsewhere. Colossians 4, you see Epaphroditus wrestling in prayer for the people of Colossae. Uh, um, Ephesians 6, believers are told to wrestle for godliness, for faith, against doubts, against evil. So there's a sense in which I could stand here and encourage you to don your spiritual spandex outfit and wrestle. Christians should wrestle. Uh, and that's a thing to do. Apart from, that isn't really the burden of this text. I mean, you could take it that way. Let's wrestle with God until we get what we want. But that's not what's going on at all. Because you see in, in uh, Genesis 32... God comes. God takes the initiative, comes in the form of a man, wounds Jacob in order to bless him. It's a very strange story. God comes down, wrestles for hours with Jacob before demonstrating that he could have beaten him in a second, and then blesses him. It's a very strange story. And yet, as we'll see, I think in it, we see that God comes, he takes the initiative, he wounds in order that he might bless. And that is not uncommon for the believer in the scriptures, that God would take the initiative and wound in order to bring greater blessing. Now, I need to be slightly careful, even as I say that. It's a vivid account, uh, and it's quite strong meat. Jacob, uh, God does this to Jacob here to humble him. He's a proud man. He needs to be humbled. Uh, and that's the, the, the burden of what needs to take place here. Uh, and so we need to be slightly careful before just applying it, because 
Uh, when we're wounded in this world, when suffering takes place, it could be for a whole number of reasons biblically. Uh, here's just a scattering. It could just be one because of disaster. There's disaster living in a fallen world, a world that has rejected God, a world that is fallen, and therefore sin and sickness and death take place, and therefore it hurts in a fallen world. Sometimes just disaster. Sometimes it's discipline, secondly, for sin in the scriptures. So Proverbs 3.12, for example, God disciplines those he loves. That's certainly what's taking place here, I'd say. Uh, Thirdly, sometimes to develop character. It's a sense of Romans 5. God allows us to endure suffering to develop our hope and perseverance. We can cope better with disappointments now and reap eternal rewards. Sometimes it's that, to develop character. Another will be sometimes it's merely to display God's grace. As his people bear up under suffering, it brings great credit to him. It's a great encouragement to others. And last, fifthly, it may be to to deepen our reliance upon him. Sometime the Lord will put us through the mill. He'll wound us to strip us down, bring us to the end of our resources so we trust him. There could be any, any number of those things going on. So we ought to be slow to determine what's going on in our lives necessarily, but it would be a mixture of them. Now look, let's uh, give ourselves a little bit of context because we're jumping right into this book of Genesis and uh, this life story of Jacob. So uh, what's going on in the first uh, 21 verses here? I'll tell you that uh, Jacob is fearing a meeting with Esau. Now, if you know nothing about the cycle of uh, Jacob that uh, d- dominates, really, this is the uh, second half of the book of Genesis, Jacob, his name literally means deceiver. He's not a nice man. He's a cad. He's a bounder. He's a scoundrel. He's a cheat. Uh, not a nice guy. Back in chapter 27, he had cheated his brother Esau out of the inheritance, the blessing, that is the family wealth, but more than that, the one who is chosen by God. The last time we see it, we hear, see and hear of Esau, he has said to Jacob, I will kill him. I will kill him. So Jacob ran away for 20 years at uh, chapters 28 to 31 of, uh, of the book of Genesis. And now God has said to Jacob, go back. Go back to your family. Go back into the promised land of Canaan. Go back. And so Jacob thinks to himself, okay, I've been gone for 20 years, I'm going back and I'm going to see my brother. And the last time I saw him, he said he's going to kill me. I wonder what mood he's in. Has he changed? I'm a little bit nervous about that. Verse 7 gives you Jacob's state of mind very clearly. Verse 7 of 32, in great fear and distress... Jacob went about his things. So there's a presenting issue for Jacob here. He's scared. He's going to have to go and see a man who swore to kill him. That would unsettle you, you'd have to admit, even though it was quite a long time ago. He's anxious. That's the presenting issue for Jacob. And, you know, all of us will have presenting issues. We may be anxious or scared about far smaller things. We may fear going into the office tomorrow. There's an awkward colleague who just... And we'd prefer not to see him anxious about all sorts of things. But that's the presenting issue for Jacob. He's nervous, anxious, fearful. That's what dominates the horizon of his life. He thinks he needs peace with Esau above anything else. That's the great issue for him. And so he has some plans. So you get plan Mark 1 in uh, uh, verses 3 to 5. 
Jacob sends some messengers ahead of him to Esau, and he's very courteous. So if you look at the language, verse 4, this is what you would say to my master, Esau. Verse 5, look, I've become wealthy. Verse 5, now I am sending this message to my Lord, very courteous to his brother, that I might find favor in your eyes. So he's trying to, you know, a bit, bit of rapprochement, trying to be kind. Verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Okay. What are they wearing? Swords? Party hats. What do we know? How are their faces looking? 400 men, that's quite a lot. Happy? They got a few drinks with them? What did, he's still obviously very nervous. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, he comes up with plan mark 2. So essentially he divides his, uh, his assets into two and thinks to himself, verse 8, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group left may escape. Okay. In verse 9, he prays. Now, you could say, well, he should have prayed to begin with, shouldn't he? If he was a decent man, he'd have prayed before he did anything. And yet, I, I think this is a good prayer. Verse 9, he prays on the basis of God's promises. God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. Verse 12, you have said, you've promised, I will surely make you prosper, make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. I think this is a good prayer. Jacob has always been an utterly self-reliant man, a scoundrel, a schemer, deceptive, a liar, a cheat. And here he's praying for the first time, rather than conniving a way out of a situation, he's saying, uh, Lord, you've made promises to me, and I, I think I need your promises right now. I need you. It's good. It's the longest prayer you get in the whole book of Genesis. I think we're meant to say, okay, there's something good going on with Jacob, brought out of his desperation. But he still comes up with another plan, uh, which is, we didn't read it, but verses 13 to 21. Okay, I'll send 550 animals to Esau. That'll be a peace offering. And uh, you get the summary of what's going on in verse 20. Be sure to say to Esau, your servant Jacob's coming behind us, for he thought, Jacob that is, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he'll receive me. So did you get what's going on here? Jacob is nervous. He feared a meeting with Esau. That's the presenting issue in his life. And so what does God do? What does the Lord do to this man who is nervous and anxious and fearful for the future? He comes and beats him up. That's not what you and I would do, is it? But that apparently is what Jacob needed. He's nervous, he's anxious, he's praying, oh Lord, I'm, I really don't know, is my brother going to kill me? I'm so stressed, I'm trying everything I can. And what's the Lord's answer? He beats him up. Let's look at that in a bit more detail. Three things, uh, but we'll go through the, the first, the longest of the text, then we'll work through the other two quite quickly. Three things then. The Lord wrestled with Jacob, that I want to suggest the Lord wrestles with us before observing that Jesus wrestled for us. Let's go through them. First then, the Lord wrestled with Jacob. Verse 22, that night Jacob got up, took his wives, maid servants, eleven sons, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so, verse 24, he's left alone. 
This is uh, his Rubicon moment. He's crossed back into the promised land of Canaan. He's now in Esau's territory. He's done it. And he's left alone. And when he's left alone, a man comes and wrestles with him until daybreak. Now, at this point, the text is deliberately vague. We're not told who this man is because Jacob doesn't know. It's very obvious by the end, verse 28, verse 30, it's God. That's who it is. It's a pre-incarnation appearance of God in human flesh. Not permanent, not essential, but God appears as a man. Okay, do notice these things. First, the Lord it is who takes initiative. Okay, Jacob's prayed, but God comes to him, verse 24. And he tries to overpower Jacob, verse 25. God comes and initiates this combat. Now, verse 25, he couldn't overpower him. Come back to that. That seems a bit odd. Not really a fair fight. God comes down and wrestles a man and doesn't overcome. Okay, that's a bit odd. But the Lord here is condescending. He limits himself. It's obviously not a real fight, but he takes the initiative. The second thing that happens, though, he cripples Jacob. Verse 25, when the man saw, that's God, that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, just to be clear, that the word used in the middle of there, touched, he touched the socket. There's nothing very complicated or technical about that. The word touched means touched. Gentle, you know, clear my eyebrow, touch. It's not a euphemism for whack, beat, smash. It's he touched. Now, I don't remember much of wrestling uh, when I used to watch it on a Saturday afternoon. I, I rack my memory. I can remember f- three moves. The washing line, the pile driver, do you remember that one? The surfboard. I don't remember the touch. You know, these two big fellas lumbering around the ring, and all of a sudden one goes, oh, and the other just collapses. That's not, doesn't really work that way. It's not a great wrestling move. No, the point is, this combat, this wrestle goes on for hours, and then all of a sudden, God just touches Jacob, and he collapses. I mean, he touches him at the hip. I, I know little about wrestling, but the hip is the pivot of the body. That's where your strength is. If you're wrestling and you've got no hip, or you've no strength in your hip, you're not going to be a great wrestler. You know, if you had a hip operation this week, you're not going to be a great wrestler. Don't try it. His point of strength has been stripped away from him. And at this point, Jacob realizes, ah, ah, this is not an ordinary man, is it? We've been wrestling, but he's just been mucking about with me. One little, and I've collapsed, just with a touch. Now, all his life, Jacob's been a schemer. He's beaten everyone. His uncle, Laban, his father, his brother. He's cheated everyone. He's defeated everyone. He's a schemer. He's always found a way to win. Until now. He's got nothing now. No more scheming, no deception. All his strength, useless. So he does all that he can. Verse 26. The man says, let me go. Jacob replied, no, 
And you have a sort of bohemian rhapsody moment, don't you? Let me go, I will not let you go. Let me. And uh, on that rumbles. But Jacob does all that he can do. He holds on. That's all he's got. This man who for chapters has been a hustler, defeating everyone, at this stage all he's got is he can just hold on. I've got nothing now. I just cling. It's all he's got left. Verse 27, the man asks Jacob, what's your name? Jacob, he answered, deceiver. Okay, I'll give you a new name. You don't need to be called deceiver, cheat, liar, scoundrel anymore. I'll give you a new name. I'll call you Israel. Struggled with God. Well, what's your name, Jacob asked, verse 29. You don't need to ask my name. You know who I am now, don't you? He says. And so, verse 29, the Lord's taken the initiative. The Lord cripples him. Verse 29, the Lord blesses him. Verse 29. He replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. There's a sense in which the, the, the grasping, the fighting of a lifetime of Jacob reached their climax here. Jacob is made weak in order that the Lord may bless him. Now, who won this contest? I mean, it's obvious, what is the Lord wins, just a little, and uh, Jacob's on the floor. And yet, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. In what sense? You get a little commentary on this in the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. Hosea 12.3 tells us this. As a man, Jacob struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged him for his grace. So in what sense did Jacob win or overcame God? He wept and begged him for his grace? In that sense, Jacob didn't defeat God, but he clung on until the Lord said, yes, you are now the man I need you to be. You've been humbled. You recognize your dependence upon me. And I will bless you. And now you're fit and right, and you can enter into the promised land. You see, there's a sense here in which the Lord has been fighting against Jacob with his left hand. I'm fighting and fighting. But with his right hand, he's done all of this in order to bless him. There's always the scheme, the plan of God. He fought against him on one hand in order to make him, mould him, give him what he needed. Or um, if you have a baby in your house, or perhaps a slightly older than a baby, a toddler, and sometimes they're kicking off and screaming and going a little bit nuts, and the adult will do the kind thing, which is pick up the child and hold him. And the child is sort of kicking, and sort of legs are going a bit like this, and so the adult just holds them tighter and tighter until they calm down. That's what God is doing here. He's pulling Jacob in. He's fighting against him until Jacob goes, okay, you are the one that I need. I see that now. 
And so verse 31, Jacob walks away limping because of his hip. And he's never the same again. Jacob spends the rest of his life limping but trusting. But that's much better than to be strong but proud and independent. He's limping but trusting. See, Jacob thought that his big, the biggest issue in his life was a warring Esau. But the Lord said, no, the greatest issue in your life is that you need to be humbled. I need to do something with you in order that I might bless you, in order that you might be the person you're meant to be. The Lord wrestled with Jacob. Briefly then, uh, the Lord, two things. First, the Lord wrestles with us. Let me suggest in this sort of pattern of uh, the God taking initiative, him wounding and then blessing, that is in a sense the life story of anyone who's become a Christian. That's how anyone becomes a Christian. It's the pattern of salvation. Every Christian would acknowledge that God takes the initiative if we're ever to know him. We'll see it in songs such as Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, uh, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." God takes the initiative. He, he wounds uh, he, he, he takes the initiative with us. Whether you were taught of Jesus Christ as a child, growing up in a family, or as an adult, it is the Lord's initiative that means you've come to know him. He cripples us. That is, if you're a Christian, God has brought you to the point where you say, I will never get into heaven on my own. I can never merit salvation. I need you. I need Jesus Christ to die in my place. Every Christian's been brought to that point where they say, I've got nothing, but I'm going to cling to you. That's all I've got. I'm going to cling to Jesus Christ. He takes the initiative. He cripples us, if you will. And then thirdly, he blesses us with forgiveness. As we've sung repeatedly, with the, with the knowledge that in the future we'll see him face to face in glory. Now that is the story of becoming a Christian. God's taken the initiative. He wounds, cripples us, and then blesses. Every Christian says that, yeah, I need him. And I know the great joy, the blessing of forgiveness, because I've been brought to the point of knowing my need. So that's the true of how anyone becomes a Christian. And yet let me suggest also further that there is, as we've sung, as we've prayed, there is also a sense, and that is how he continues to deal with his people. Now here's a question, I don't know if you ask it, but when I read this story, I ask this question, why does God do this to Jacob? Why doesn't, or why didn't, why didn't the Lord God come down and say, Jacob, let's you and me have a drink and talk about your attitude. You're a pretty proud man, and you need to change. Before you go into the promised lands, before you have a patriarch, you know, we just, let's have a cup of tea and talk it through. Or let's go for a drink man to man and talk it through. He could have done that. He does it like this. He wrestles with the man for hours before pointing out that it was all a charade. And he could have defeated him in a second. Why does he do that? Why go through such an elaborate performance? I don't know. What would you call it? An elaborate activity? Why do it like this? 
There's a sense, of course, which God is acting like a, like a father wrestling with a child. You know, a dad may accommodate himself to his toddler's level, and they may wrestle. And, of course, the dad may sort of roll over and say, oh, you've got me, you've got me, you've got me. And at any point in there, he could just roll over his 13 or growing number of stones, roll them over onto his son, and sort of defeat him easily. He could do that at any point. And that's what the Lord is doing. There is, there's a gracious condescension of God here to Jacob's level to engage with him. Now, we're not told specifically, of course, why God does it this way. But I take it Jacob never forgot. And I wonder if we're given this vivid story, God records it. Because it's so strange. And it sort of drives these truths into our heads a little bit. That sometimes God will act to humble us in order that we may become the people we should be. Sometimes the Lord will cripple us in order that he might bless us. There are times when he'll do that, so we cry out, I need you. And actually, limping but trusting, it's not an uncommon way that we live the Christian life as we go through. It's not as if I want it to be right now, but I trust you. Now, that is a strong truth. It's easy in the Western world to become very self-centered and uh, slip into the mindset of, I will praise the Lord if he gives me what I desire. Oh, we don't say it quite so crassly, hopefully, but there's something in our hearts which certainly feels that truth. Or to slip into the pattern of thought which says, Lord, I've lived a good life for you now as a Christian, and so I deserve comfort and ease. Uh, I have followed you faithfully, I've, I've, I've served, I've given, I, I've been a good Christian, and so you are obliged to give me good things. You're obliged to make my path a smooth motorway uh, going forward, aren't you? I know in a Western world where happiness is what we d- desire more than most things in life, it's easy to sort of drift with that m- mindset. Uh, we just need to be reminded that's not biblical. And you'll be disappointed if that is your paradigm for the Christian life. Sometimes he will cripple those he loves in order to bless them. And he'll do that to make you a person that your loving Heavenly Father wants you to be for your good and for his glory. But you need to know it is for, his, it is for your good and for his glory. Because to my mind, suffering is unbearable unless you know that the Lord is for you and that he is with you. Now, for many of us, or for most of us, it's unlikely to be a single night of intense wrestling uh, that is the most memorably wounding encounter of our life. Of course, that's very unlikely. Often these things are are, are long-term, unemployment, financial pressures, whatever it may be. It could go on for months or years. Uh, I felt at times 
for what it's worth, for us as, uh, if you'll forgive me for a moment, for us as a family, certainly the last month has felt like watching a car crash in slow motion, knowing that at one point tomorrow, uh, the girl we view as our daughter, expected legally to be our daughter, will be taken away and we'll never see her again. And having that knowledge for, for a month in advance and seeing it coming, it's felt like that, that the world is slowed right down and you can see this crash coming. Uh, to be honest with you, at times I just thought, this is cruel. I don't like this. I could be honest with you and say, I've read Psalm 42 a lot and I get what he says. Uh, the writer, when he says, tears have been my food day and night. I get that. In a way, I just never did before. And I think that would be unbearable if you did not know that the Lord was with you and for you. And so on you go, limping but trusting. Question, how can I know, how can I know for certain that the Lord is with me for my good? Answer, Jesus wrestled for us. Briefly as we finish, the third thing, Jesus wrestled for us. Because that is what you read in the New Testament. It's obvious, on, particularly obvious on some occasions in the Garden of Gethsemane where you see Jesus Christ wrestling with God his Father, if I could put it in those terms. Say, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> uh, is there any other way? Can you take this cup away? But then say, no, not my will, but yours be done. When he wrestles with God his Father upon the cross, and asks why. Why have you forsaken me? And for myself, I found that the most extraordinary truth that, that I've never really dwelt upon in quite the same way before. How wonderful it is as a Christian to have a Savior who says upon the cross, why? Why? Now, I know he's quoting Psalm 22, and I know what the rest of the psalm goes on to say, but he still chooses to quote that verse, why have you forsaken me? Because it reminds me very clearly that Jesus Christ is not remote. He's not immune. He's not uncaring. He knows. And yet still, of course, he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he trusts. Oh, of course, you could say that he was crippled upon the cross. Physically, that's true. But far more than that, the full wrath of God against all the sins of all his people fell upon him. And Jesus would not let go until he had won the blessing, not for himself, but for us. He wrestled for us. And so, of course, the cross helps to make sense of suffering. And it guarantees that if you're one who trusts in Jesus Christ, he secures that blessing for you. Oh, the cross was God's initiative. But the son was wounded, crippled, in order to secure blessing for you and for me. And we can know that in the midst of whatever takes place here and now, Jesus wrestled for us, cling to him. Let me, this is a, forgive me. Let me just read you a, a brief letter. It's a letter that my uh, son received from uh, his godmother uh, a week or so ago. It's only brief. Dearest Nathan, hello again. Lots of letters from us. Mummy told us the sad news about Yasmin leaving, and I thought I'd write to you again in case you were feeling a little sad or worried. 
Do you know that grown-ups sometimes have very funny ways of dealing with sadness? Quite often they do things like eat loads of chocolate. It tastes amazing. But really the feeling doesn't last very long, so they have to eat more and more, and then they get fat and regret it. We are so, 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 so blessed to know that Jesus is a hope we can rely on. Not just for 10 seconds, not just for 10 minutes, not for 10 days or 10 weeks, but forever. He loves us so very much and wants to and can carry our burdens whenever and for however long we need. So, I've enclosed a packet of Rolos. <laughs> and whenever you have a sad moment, perhaps mummy can let you have one. Not like the fuddy grown-ups who think that eating chocolate will take away the sadness. But to help you to trust Jesus with all your feelings, good and bad. Sorry, good and sad. Have a chocolate and return to him. Keep returning to him, Nathy. We're praying that you will. We're praying for you all. That's very simple, isn't it? But quite profound. Where are you going to turn? Sometimes the Lord wrestles with us. And it's not what we would desire. And it's not what we would choose. And it hurts. But he does so for our good. Because he's a father who loves us. And you can know it. Because Jesus has wrestled for you if you're a Christian. So return to him, cling to him, trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this strange, vivid story of your dealings with uh, one man, this patriarch, Jacob. And while we don't want to flatten it, edit away, we recognize that this is sometimes how you deal with your people. You wound them in order to shape them for our good and for your glory. Father, we wouldn't choose it, but we know you use the wounding for our good. And to help us to trust you, help us to look up and see our Saviour Jesus Christ who trusted you even while asking why. Help us to look to him. And know that in him we have one who's one blessing for us. And we have one who sympathizes in every way. Father, keep us clinging to him. In Jesus' name. Amen.